0: and Welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today is no exception, and well, this is Christmas month, so why not talk about Christmas topics? And one of them is the idea that Christianity really begins the announcement of one of my favorite topics you'll see talked about on my Facebook page, the virgin birth, which I do affirm. Now, what is the virgin birth, though? Is it true? What difference does it make even if it is true? Is this just God, you know, like showing off or something like that? Or was it done to avoid the paternal sin passed down through Adam or something like that? Well, in order to discuss this, I've decided to bring on Dr. Richard Schink, who wrote the book The Virgin Birth of Christ. He has his uh, Bachelors of Science from Wheaton College and a physicist at Fermi National or Fermi National. He graduated from 1979 to 86, and apparently went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School for his MDiv in 1984, a pastor of General Baptist General Conference. Org- in Nebraska, 1986 to 1991, Munderland, Illinois, 1992 to 2007, he was a pastor of Evangelical Free Church. He got his PhD from the University of Wales lancaster and he's an adjunct professor at Theology Bethlehem College and Seminary. He was from 2009 to 17 and Paris there is 2017 to present so um Dr. Shink, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast
1: thank you Nick good to be with you
0: how did you get to be doing what you're doing if my audience doesn't know you
1: (laughs) well you just gave my uh, brief history but uh When I was in high school, I had a desire to serve in physics as well as to do something before I was a pastor, and then served as a pastor for 30 years, and during that time got my PhD, and very much enjoyed the privilege of discipling men in the context of teaching, especially men who are headed for the ministry. Mm-hmm. and was given that opportunity at Bethlehem College and Seminary, which is in Minneapolis, when I moved up here to serve in a church, was able to do it adjunct. Until uh, about the time I was 60, they offered me a job full-time there, and it seemed to be a good third-career move, uh, and something, uh, Lord willing, sustainable for the next uh, couple of decades.
0: hmm
1: Now, let's get into the subject. First off, Do you affirm the
0: virgin birth, which I do affirm?
1: Yes, I do, Nick. What I found, though, is sometimes the discussion stops Mm -hmm. after only affirming or not affirming, or it becomes Mm -hmm. merely an argument over whether or not it should be affirmed. Mm
0: -hmm. So what got you interested in the virgin birth, of all things?
1: Well, a number of articles that I read, uh, but also in conversations with my students Um, Seeing just that issue that when we talked about the nature of Christ as God and man, one of the subjects was, of course, talking about his virgin birth. Mm -hmm. But what what it meant beyond affirming it was not so clear to my students. And I realized it wasn't so clear to me either. Mm -hmm. So I began to think about it over the next five or six years. Mm -hmm. And as I thought, I collected uh, ideas, things I read, um, things other men, friends, uh, had taught me. And uh, at first, I thought it was going to be an article, and ultimately, it was a book. Now, the virgin
0: birthday is often seen as a sort of shibboleth, as it were. For those who don't know, this is a biblical reference that when Jephthah had defeated some of his enemies, and I believe it was a tribe of Ephraim, wasn't happy that they weren't included in the battle, they decided to go to war with them. And some, there needed be a way to recognize the Ephraimites and the non-Ephraimites. And women was they had a hard time pronouncing the word shibboleth. So a shibboleth seems to be kind of like a dividing line, as it were. And the virgin birth is usually just like that, isn't
1: it? Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, there is a sense that it defines whether or not you're in or out in regard to evangelical fundamental beliefs and whether or not you are part of that.
0: Mm-hmm. Because usually it seems, for instance,
1: with Christians where
0: if you don't hold a virgin birth by God, you must be... A liberal in sorts, and for skeptics, if you hold a virgin birth, well, geez, you must be incredulous and ignorant of science.
1: That does seem to be the divide, though. It is new, as perhaps you already know, Nick. It's new as of the nineteenth century, mm-hmm. when the Enlightenment began to mature, probably starting with Schleiermacher, uh, but then others who picked on, picked up on that, uh, and made science uh, in some way a decider over top the scriptures. And that meant a kind of limitation in what was legitimate to believe if we were going to live in what they considered to be a a modern world. Yeah, I believe it's even Rudolf Altman
0: who said, for instance, that no one can live in the age of electronic lights and radio and such and affirm the miracles of the New Testament.
1: Yeah, that was exactly the feeling that uh, began uh, in, in the 19th century. That's correct. Well, your book here, Reva, uh,
0: I read through, is an excellent book. And we're going to spend some time a little bit here talking about one subject that's not discussed. Too much, but it does discuss some. Since this is an apologetics podcast, we're going to be talking about, a bit about the historicity of a virgin birth, as it were. Now, what what should we? How should we start off conversations when we meet someone who's very sceptical of a virgin
1: birth? Well, I I think again that the the issue is making the same claim the Bible does. And in a sense, allowing that claim to stand. Um, our job not to prove that the Bible is true. Our job is to let the Bible loose. Uh, because we see the word as powerful. We see the word as a sword. So often when we reduce it to an argument, um, which isn't what you suggested, but I've seen a number of people do that, Nick. When we reduce it to an argument. Um, it becomes our ability to battle. We almost muffle the word rather than letting it stand. Mm -hmm. But there are some
0: people who do still have questions. I mean, let's start with a common one you see on the Internet, for instance, that there are so many pagan accounts of virgin births and where Jesus is just a rip-off of that one, obviously.
1: Yeah, for some, that's an obvious thing. More interesting to me is uh, why there are so many. Um, For example, the flood accounts, um, which is another uh, similar kind of discussion. Uh, It seems outside of our normal experience. But most cultures have a flood account. So one of the charges brought against Scripture is, we made one up too. Or a creation account. Uh, Many have a creation account that at least sounds mythological. And uh, the accusation is made against Christians that we, if you will, need to fit in. Um, the reality is that on God and on his word, for he says he's original, he's the first, he's the one who's defining. It seems to make more sense uh, to understand that the, the virgin birth account, the flood account, the creation account, Uh, that the Bible has are foundational, Mm. whereas the others are dim echoes. Mm. The difficulty in that perhaps is that the flood and the creation are prior to written history, whereas the virgin birth seems to come after some of the others have been put forward. Interestingly, um, it's not necessarily the case that the virgin birth story wasn't anticipated. Uh, E.W. Bullinger, uh, early in the 19th century, was one who suggested that God had told to Adam that the virgin birth would be uh, the event that would bring about the first uh, invasion of redemption into creation. Now he didn't prove his case, but he suggests something. Very interesting, and that could be the root of some of these virgin birth stories. Yeah, I'd say as one who's
0: looked into many of these, many of them are actually not virgin birth stories at all. But one of my favorites to use is the example of a deity Mithras. and say, well, I suppose technically you could say Mithras is a virgin birth. That Rock quite probably never did have sex with anyone.
1: <laughs> well said.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, some people also can say, but there are also uh, so many contradictions in the narratives of Matthew and Luke, which are the only ones that explicitly talk about the virgin birth. What are we supposed to do with those?
1: Well, maybe you could uh, make this more specific. So give me a, a sample of what you would see. Uh, or what you've been charged with uh, as, a, as a difference in these stories. Of course, one is from the perspective of Mary, and one is from the perspective of Joseph. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> Matthew has
0: things taking place in Bethlehem, apparently quite naturally. Luke has to make up this whole worldwide census, supposedly, and get them there just in order to fulfill prophecy. And then there are those time differences and such. Luke has been back in Jerusalem about eight days later for the circumcision and such, and the the Magi show up in Bethlehem, and it's quite likely maybe a year or so later when they do.
1: Yeah, I, I think it is possible that the stories are both incomplete and therefore both giving Uh, if you will, different perspectives that sound distinct. Uh, For example, uh, when Jesus uh, went over to Decapolis, you know, were there two demoniacs or one? Mm -hmm. um, We have the representation of one, which isn't incompatible with there being two, and we have the representation of two. That seems to be incongruous at first. Mm -hmm. We've got other examples of Jesus feeding 5,000 and 4,000, And if the accounts weren't both in the same gospel, one was in grass, one was in desert, we'd be saying those are are really different stories. And the fact, they are. In that case, it's different accounts of different stories. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've got John representing a clearing of the temple early in his gospel, whereas all the others do it at the end. So there's a lot of questions about what the author representing by selecting the facts he does. By leaving out facts um, he may be leading us to to an incomplete story but that doesn't seem to bother them their job doesn't seem to be to give a complete history but by the truth that they do reveal to us help us see a particular point so i i don't see those uh, as any reason to see a distinction i think the easiest or most challenging distinction is the difference in the genealogies, for example, that are yeah. given in the two accounts.
0: Yeah, we'll get to that later on, shall we? What about the Lucan census, for instance? Do you have any opinions on the census in Luke?
1: You know, I don't have any opinions on the difference in, in regard mm-hmm. to the census. That's not something that I uh, have studied enough to have a valid opinion. But I can say in regard to the uh, the Magi and the visitors, I don't think there's a compelling reason to assume as we do that just because of the how long it took between when they saw the sign in the heavens, how long ago that happened and how long it took for them to come, or the fact that Herod destroyed everybody under two, one could easily conceive that they God sent them there to have them arrive just at the time of the birth. And that Herod being Herod was glad to kill everybody under the age of two, just so he didn't miss anybody. Mm -hmm. Um, Adding up the numbers that probably amounts to about 20 babies. So he's saying, you know, I'm not going to kill two. I'm going to kill everybody that I can account for. And even so, likelihood, given the numbers that we understand at that time, that would have been somewhere in the order of 20 rather than 200. And uh, so he was just being, or it's conceivable that he was just being thorough. We don't know that they showed up two years late. Yeah, And
0: a lot of skeptics do ask, well, geez, why isn't this slaughter of the infants mentioned by Josephus and such? And I always say, well, Josephus isn't necessarily giving us an exhaustive account of everything Herod did. And this could have really been a minor
1: incident in Herod's career, a part of the course for him. It certainly it certainly is fitting to the kinds of things he did throughout his career. And if I'm right, and I may not be, but if I'm right that this accounts for about 20 babies, that's awful in terms of 20 families being involved. But certainly doesn't hit uh, the kinds of massacres that we hear about uh, of Herod and of Herod's massacre occurs planned and not completed, as well as others throughout history. That mm-hmm. sounds a little bit small, unless Jesus is at the center of it. Uh, you know, and that makes it it's significant to each of the families, of course. But on the scale of worldwide massacres, it may be rather small. It does seem to be an interesting
0: phenomenon. I know it's in biblical studies that an account in the Bible can't be seen as true unless it's explicitly mentioned somewhere else, but that never seems to work with any other here it up. That's right. It's quite amazing to me.
1: Yeah, that's right. History isn't always fully attested across uh, different authors, for they have different intentions and perspectives, and mm-hmm. they have different things that they're preserving. And actually, 10 people might have preserved it, and only the biblical accounts uh, made it to us. We might still yet find them.
0: Yeah. Now, there's also a fact that, for instance, let's look at the other Gospels. Mark and John nowhere explicitly say anything about a virgin birth. Wouldn't this be an important detail for them to include?
1: Well, I'm not convinced they didn't. Uh, there's an explicit account and implicit accounts. I'm um, remembering that both Mark and John start at different places. John starts paralleling the uh, creation story. Mark mm-hmm. starts with the declaration of the gospel and the work of the Baptist. And so their starting point is different. John, it seems, um, does actually implicitly refer to the virgin birth in chapter one, verses 12 and 13. Mm-hmm. And so in that context, he talks about a our virgin birth, if you will, um, by the Spirit, which is a, is a teaching that Jesus himself will pick up again in chapter 3. So, like a good prelude, uh, John is preparing us for what's coming. But in those two verses, maybe it's worth me reading them, he says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then, verse 14, the famous, and the word became flesh. What's interesting is 13, who were born not of blood, is translated by Tertullian and Irenaeus as he was born. And so when they report this text in the context of their own writings, they change it to he. Now, there's no textual evidence for this, but it's interesting that for these two early church writers, they saw this as a reference to Jesus and to his immaculate—I'm <laughs> sorry—his uh, birth as a, from a virgin. That is not by man's effort, designs, genealogy, but a, a virgin conception and birth. So, does that mean that that's exactly what John meant? Not necessarily. But here's two men fairly close to John who hear that echo. Implicitly, here in the Gospel of John. I'm inclined to think that that was in John's mind, though that would be hard to prove. Mm-hmm. Mark similarly has references to Jesus being uh, a child of Mary in chapter 3. And without reference to Joseph, yes, perhaps he died. Um, but also that seems to be how he's known. And so Mark seems to be giving us an echo. You know, it doesn't say son of Joseph, who though he was dead. Mm -hmm. Um, would still be a right attribution.
0: Mm -hmm. So
1: when in three, he talks about, you know, son of Mary, that may be Mark's implicit uh, signing on to the virgin birth. So Mm -hmm. you're right, only two of them, was that their intent to spend a significant amount of time on it? But seems to me John and Mark are tipping their hat to the reality.
0: Yeah, I'd like to add a little bit to that for what you said about John, I know Spiros Zodiades said the exact same thing in his book, Was Christ God? That's the first time I'd ever read that kind of interpretation, and then I read it in your book again, well, maybe there is a lot more to this than I thought. And for Mark, Mark is supposedly the eyewitness testimony of Peter, and for more on that, mm-hmm. we've, and for more on that listeners, we've interviewed Richard Baucom on the show, on his book, uh, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, so I recommend going back and listening back want more information on that. But if this is Yahweh's account of Peter, where well, Peter quite likely was not present for the virgin birth, so we can understand being left out.
1: <laughs> True enough.
0: Now, what about Paul, though? Because I mean, some people think, shouldn't Paul have talked about this in his epistles? But yet, Paul doesn't have any explicit statements either.
1: No, he doesn't. And uh, <clears throat> that's often shown as a, as a reason to have some concern. Um, I, I don't think that's obvious either. Again, um, uh, short-circuiting that same discussion, every author has a point to make. The gospel narrative are fundamentally focused on the life of Christ. Paul is focused on the hmm. meaning of the life of Christ. And so we might we might let him off the hook on that account alone. But there's actually more because uh, Paul, um, throughout his, his writings, refers to this odd thing called adoption. Um, we won't find that in Jewish history as a legitimate or, or a good thing. And yet somehow, some way, for Paul, adoption has become something that he trumpets and holds up as something that should encourage us in Romans 8 and in Ephesians and in Galatians. And so this idea seems to be, I would say, Paul's reflection of the virgin birth, talking about what is the meaning of the virgin birth. So not looking at Christ's life, but at the meaning, he seems to take that. And uh, as you and I have discussed by letter, you know, the adoption of Christ by Joseph, is a radical new thing uh, to call it a good thing and to call it something that people are feeling uh, e- encouraged and excited about. It seems that Jesus gave a new meaning to adoption that Paul picked up and gave that label to us. And
0: I think you also include a reference in your book to Galatians 4, about the interesting passage says, born of Roman, which Moses could say. Isn't everybody
1: right? Right, and and so Paul, in I'm just looking at my Bible here, and that's it's circled in 4 4. Um, Paul, really at that point, we would have expected him to say something else, uh, board of. Uh, but he doesn't. He really does step aside, and it does, again, seem to be his agreement with what his audience already knows. Mm -hmm. So there's many things Paul doesn't repeat, uh, many things Paul doesn't lay foundation, but it's a very odd phrase, given Paul's typical phraseology, if he's not signing on to what is common currency among the church. Mm -hmm. And probably even before the... Some of the Gospels, at least, have been written and circulated.
0: And uh, let's also say that, uh, were this uh, not the case, this is really something that, contrary to what people might think, the early church would not really want to make up, because it yes. would seem to seem too much like like a, um, like a pagan doctrine. I mean, Matthew is h- hardly going to win favors with a Jewish audience, he says... On um, Jesus, um, illegitimate. No, 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 no. It, it was Yahweh who did it. I mean, most skeptics look and say, okay, so Mary was raped or had an affair or Joseph just couldn't wait and you're blaming it on Yahweh. Yeah, that's convincing.
1: Yeah, it, it just is Joseph uh, in, in Matthew is so grieved and offended when Mary gives this explanation that she is. She is with child by the Holy Spirit, and like what we would call a good modern, not pre-modern, what we imagine to be a pre-modern, he should have been gullible and said, sure, of course, but he didn't. He made plans to divorce her, though Mm -hmm. quietly, um, kindly, gently, nonetheless, to divorce her in his grief. Mm-hmm. Uh, pre- pre-moderns didn't find this something attractive. This is a problem for the gospel, mm-hmm. and they were dealing with the, the real history. God is invading. He's making demands. And it's, it's uh, it wasn't easy then. It wasn't in, any easier then for pre-moderns and for moderns or post-moderns. Yeah, I, I find it amusing
0: when some people argue against this with me and say, well, we know so much more about science. They said, look, Joseph and Mary probably did not know as much about embryology and gestation and such as we did. So, but they certainly knew enough to know what it takes to make a baby. If you think this is something new, then please tell me, when exactly was it that science established that it takes sex between a man and woman to make a baby?
1: <laughs> yes, well said.
0: Uh, let's start looking into the, uh, the reasons for the virgin birth. Of course, it could be something to think this is kind of like, God showing off or something, but really that that's not the case for you. What are the two big reasons that you argue against first and your church? I'd like to just hear you explain them
1: well. Well, sure. Um Early on in the church, there was an anxiety, if you will, about uh, sexual relationships, Mm -hmm. mostly for the same reason there is today. It's very hard for us to get that right. It's a very powerful thing, um, something that's easy for us to uh, uh, mishandle. Mm -hmm. And so there was an anxiety, if you will, about the stain of concupiscence. Now, concupiscence comes from two Latin roots, one meaning with, the other meaning lust, lust. Lust isn't always just sexual lust, but it did mean lust, uh, an illegitimate passion, a twisted passion for something. And so, with twisted passion or with sexual lust, and it was their opinion that only in the imagination could a husband and wife, in perfect um, uh, holiness, conceive a child. That in some way, there was always what they called cupiscence mixed in. Augustine was one of many, but he was a leading voice, um, who saw this as a problem for the birth of Christ. And uh, although he wasn't wholly clear in this, but it became a, a fixture later in the church, but he wanted some way to remove this stain from the coming of the and the birth of Christ. If, I could, so would, if I could
0: jump in right quick, what you're saying then sure. is there was this concern that even between a married husband and wife that exactly. having sex would be wrong in some ways because it wasn't done out of a desire to have children, but out of a desire to have sex.
1: Yeah, only only in a in a perfect world. You know in other words, our motives are never pure. That would be their argument. Uh, no matter what you do or in this world, your motives is, are never pure. And for the coming of the Holy One, there was a desire to say, "Well, then, maybe this gets rid of the pure motives problem." Um, as if, as if it was wrong to enjoy your spouse sexually. As if sexually enjoying your spouse was even wrong for married couples. That's right.
0: So I've right now, um, I'm guessing there could be some married husbands out there. Me, are sitting. Is it is it is it wrong? Please say it's not wrong, please.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's many places in Scripture we could go to to be convinced of that. Not least would be Song of Solomon, mm-hmm. uh, but not the only. Uh, no, I think there was a, a misunderstanding that was not singular to that day and time. And I think it continues even today. I think Paul dealt with it in 1 Corinthians 7, where there were some people coming to the church saying, you know, Christians should not marry. He said, well, I'll give you a reason not to marry. reason not to marry would be just to be focused on the front lines work of the kingdom. But marriage itself is not a problem. You know, this is not something that... Uh, Christians should be listening to. And I think that probably was an argument along the same lines and uh, and, uh, the kind of argument that uh, is really a distraction for what it means for Christians to be not only not the law, but set free because of the blood of Christ. But even before that time, it was true.
0: And even in that passage, he has this statement where he says, you know, when you have a married couple they should not abstain from sex except for a short that's time right. and by mutual consent which it's pretty much saying yeah, married couples, you all need to be having sex together and we can be quite sure there were some couples in Paul's churches who were above childbearing years and he'd still be saying yeah,
1: you need to be having sex together yeah, I think that covers that well Nick, that's right and then the other the other misguided reason was a concern about original sin mm-hmm. and I mean, this isn't um it, it, one of the problems with saying the virgin birth solves the problem of original sin is you have to believe that that sin is passed down through Through the husband only. Now, that would be a very strange, uh, unbiblically supported, not biblically supported position. Uh, There's no reason to think that men versus women are particularly evil or particularly passed down evil. Uh, If that's true, there's just no evidence to that effect. So, even this issue, that is, uh, even if original sin is passed through conception. Um, it wouldn't be solved by having just uh, one that is just the woman. Mm-hmm. For she's still related to her.
0: Yeah. So now we've uh, dealt with two ideas, and these were ideas that some people might be thinking these were a bit bizarre, but they were seriously debated in the early church, even the medieval period, weren't they?
1: Well, not only that, but I think they're the common coin today. I think it's the first answer that uh, people tend to give when mm-hmm. – pressed for a reason, that still comes to mind. We still have uh, that kind of idea that there must be something wrong with sex, Um, that original sin, well, maybe it does pass Mm -hmm. through genetically. So I don't think it's only then. I think we're still the inheritors of that. Yeah, and just for
0: for, for those who might be concerned, this in no way denies that there is such a thing as original
1: sin. Right. And it doesn't deny that there's concupiscence. It just denies that concupiscence is a necessary sin for married couples. And it doesn't deny original sin. It just says, I don't think the Bible has told us exactly how that's passed on. I don't even think I'd say necessary sin,
0: as it were, because I really don't think it's any sin for me to look at my wife and desire her and such.
1: Well, no. My point was that it is, of course, possible to do uh, to to act with lust, yeah. And rather, that has uh, that's just a reality for us. Mm-hmm. That it's a reality that it's gone in the context of marriage. Sure, that's where it's permitted, but yeah. the, the concupiscence continues. Uh, th- though the argument that it's not continuous in marriage is a good one. Yeah.
0: Now, if those aren't the reasons why. God would give us a virgin birth to give us Christ, where it's good to knock down the false reasons, but we need something to put in its place. What do you have to put in its place?
1: Well, I think there's a, there's about six that have come to mind, but before we even talk about those, Nick, let me give the, the caveat that okay. my my book is intended as six offered Ideas in mm-hmm. the hope that people reading it say, and we've got 60 more. Mm-hmm. Um, so it isn't these six. And in fact, some of those that I propose uh, may not have standing in the end. Um, I hope they do. I think they do. Mm-hmm. But I'm not as concerned with defending each of these six as making people uh, or helping people to begin to think of others and to move away from the shibboleth. To the rich meaning and how we're supposed to live out this drama as Christians. So glad to talk about those six, but just want to make it clear that I don't think defending these is my main concern. Certainly try- not trying to limit this to six.
0: Yeah. So as uh, we're getting into these, some people might look, listen to some and say, uh, that one doesn't really work for me and such. And so I think, well, you know, I thought of one that I think you haven't considered, and you'd be forever both of those.
1: Yeah, I'd be very glad for pushback in any of them though I'd probably have to unfriend them in Facebook, but <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey, so let's uh go into him. You I mean I've got your book right here with me and we got a chapter here on historic and biblically grounded meanings and such. So um what what are one of the reasons I see in here is to stand against the
1: bias of naturalism. Okay so that, let's discuss
0: that one a little bit
1: well my background is in physics though to be clear i was an engineering physicist uh as you read my docket that i have a, a bachelor's in physics i got to do a lot of things in fermilab that were punching above my weight um, but, uh, was not a, a scientist or a, a physicist, which would require a PhD, but I loved working there. I loved the privilege of serving, uh, with men and women who were looking deeply at, as, as well exegetes of God's natural revelation His general revelation. Mm-hmm. And I think there's much to learn from that.
0: Um,
1: there does tend to be a bias, um, out of the Enlightenment and out of the um, the, the science only uh, perspective, that at least uh, we're told is uh, our inheritance in our culture. And the idea here is that the there's the universe is all there is, all there was, and all there ever will be. That thank you, a, Dr. Fagan. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's where that comes from. And and the more technical term would be that this is a uh, ontological naturalism mm-hmm. that is, the naturalism it really defines what being is. Well, of course, the Bible in its opening words, says completely differently. in the beginning, God, and then God spoke, and the universe was, so we have our being from God. So that's a significant divide, but interestingly, um, the divide isn't fundamentally between ontological naturalism and theism. Uh, the fundamental divide is is over means uh, to understand creation on creation's terms. And that's a project which is worth doing. That is understanding creation and creation's terms. But into the middle of that, if someone wants to say science Uh, necessarily has an ontological naturalism or an ontological materialism component, which I think, again, is speaking outside uh, anything. Science doesn't even have the right to say that because all science is saying is, how does it work? And so the coming of Christ into this world, we're given a sign. And this sign that God gives to us is that a woman who has never had sexual relationship, bears a child. And God says, deal with that. And there is a graciousness, a condescension of God to invade the world and say, I, I'm going to force you to deal with me as I am and as I present myself. So that's, that's one thing the virgin birth is doing, is it is a sign and a symbol which points to God. Now, someone could still choose not to believe it, of course, but it still is is that lightning rod that makes us decide which side of the divide, which isn't science versus not science. It's ontological materialism versus a world in which there is someone outside of the universe and that someone being specifically the creator and redeemer of the world. The debate
0: really isn't so much about science.
1: It's much more about... Philosophy and metaphysics instead. Yeah, one of the best books I've read in this is by uh, Alvin Plantinga, mm-hmm. uh, where where the conflict really lies. A book I'd strongly recommend.
0: Same here. I've I've tried to get him on the show before. I haven't had any luck so far. But who knows what the future holds here. And for anyone also interested in these issues, we've done several shows on science and religion. Hugh Ross has been on a number of times. Mm-hmm. He's been from the theistic creationist side, we've had people from bio-logos on as well, so I recommend going back and checking those archives and looking a bit at those Now There was also a bit reason that the virgin birth was simply given to protect the deity and before humanity of Jesus.
1: Yes. Um, that's, uh, that's very significant uh, in that when we come into the world, and rather we come with Christian parents who are teaching us about Jesus from the beginning, or we find ourselves uh, confronted by someone who wants to present to us the Bible and the God behind the Bible, our experience is to meet Jesus as God. Um, That's how we first learn about him, and it grows in us that he's fully human. Interestingly, the apostles had the reverse experience. They met Jesus as fully human. And it grew on them, Uh, he told them, but it took a while to sink in, um, that he was fully divine. And the virgin birth is one of those events that helps us see that when God comes to the world uh, in the person of Jesus Christ, he comes to the world in a way that declares in in really absolute terms, um, on his terms, I am both God and man, not half and half, but fully both. Because a virgin is with child by the Holy Spirit. And so, is, uh, uh Karl Barth said, the dogma of the virgin birth is thus the confession which eliminates the last surviving possibility of understanding the very God and very man intellectually. It's an idea or arbitrary interpretation. In the sense of, and I'm going to use two terms, docetic or Ebionite Christianity, close quote. Mm-hmm. But what he's saying here is the world is always trying to pick between a, uh, a docetic view, he's really God, uh, not not really man, or an Ebionite view, um, he's just a, a, a man who we should follow and pay attention to, uh, not really God. And so those two pictures uh, have often divided the church. And Bart is saying that the virgin birth uh, jumps on us and says, no, 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 listen, look at me. I'm claiming both. You cannot resolve this into one side or the other. Yeah, and both of those groups would
0: have absolutely denied the virgin birth. as where well. I think the Ebionites did specifically.
1: Hmm they would have to it just wouldn't fit into their system and in fact God likes to do things that don't fit into our system uh, <laughs> he specializes in that mm-hmm. and it, it's, I think it's
0: really important because usually we can make this some sort of doctrine say about Mary or something like that but really but virgin birth isn't a doctrine at all about Mary I mean, it, Mary's a special woman but if it hadn't been Mary it would have been another woman but it's a doctrine about Jesus entirely
1: yeah, it's, it's, it's both a creation and a redemption doctrine. That's always going to involve God's people, but it's first about God. The whole Bible is first about God. And, and it together, the virgin birth, hits both uh, the great truths of, of, well, it hits really all three, uh, creation, redemption, and revelation all at once.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, we talked a little bit some about the genealogies and such, And this is an important topic, but in order to discuss the topics of the genealogies, I think we need to go back in biblical time about, oh, say, 600 years or so before the virgin birth. Now, some could be saying, 600 years before the virgin birth. Why do we need to go back all that far to understand the genealogies? What, What happened that
1: was so important? Did you want to take that or you want me to handle that? I was wanting you to handle that. I will. All right. Well, Jeremiah uh, was a prophet in Josiah's day. He he got an easy start. Josiah was a man seeking after God. Um, But things went downhill for uh, Jeremiah after that. His job got harder. Um, And in that context, along comes a king named Jehoiakim with an M, and then his son Jehoiakim. They had so grieved God uh, Jehoiakim through his longish reign of 11 years, Jehoiakim in his brief reign of three months, that God said to both of them in Jeremiah 22 and then later, oddly, in 36 to the Father, Jeremiah is not a book that uh, is, is slavishly committed to uh, a linearity uh, of story. Uh, and he says in Jeremiah 22 to Jehoiakim, kin, God has cursed you, he calls him Konaniah, one of his names, God has cursed you because of your behavior, and no child born to you will ever reign, and in cursing both Jehoiakim and his royal son, Jehoiakim he has, that is God has through Jeremiah cut off the line of Christ, something he had promised. Um, and this had to grieve both Jeremiah as well as the people. And what was interesting is Joachim was not killed, he was taken off to Babylon. He's alive. And so along comes a man named Hananiah, chapter 28 of uh, Jeremiah. And Hananiah is a false prophet. But we can understand this false prophet. He says to the people of Israel, hey, I'm telling you, within a very short period of time, God is going to restore everything. He's going to give you your king back, which he didn't say his name, but it means that he's going to send back Jehoiakim. They knew he was still alive. He's going to prosper you, and all will be well. Uh, Jeremiah uh, responds basically with, let it be so. Uh and but mockingly. And they got into a really deep disagreement, which on the face of it, uh, Jeremiah lost. But Jeremiah said, if I'm God's prophet, you will die before your prophecy could ever come to pass, and it won't. And that's what happened. Hananiah died. Jehoiakim was not returned. But Jeremiah took an interesting turn. He also says three times, as sure as the day is followed by the night and night by day. He calls it God's covenant with the day. So God will bring the reign of David. These two seem absolutely impossible to reconcile. And Jeremiah gives no clue how that's going to happen. And yet, and yet, God will do so. There will be a ruler. And of course, we have to wait six hundred years to find how he does that.
0: Now, that's us uh, also say that some scholars and such do take the interpretation that when the king is to be rendered childless, it doesn't mean for all time; it just means none of his immediate descendants.
1: Yeah, that is one way to understand it. I I don't think I think that understanding is driven not by the text immediately, but by the outcome. And so looking at the outcome, if the text alone stood as a text, I think we would, without discussion, say, well, of course. But I think these scholars are looking at the end. Uh, you know, they've read the end. And so there has to be some way to reconcile. And so a way is to do a mention to say this is just a single generation. But no child born to you will reign. Typically, uh, that kind of language uh, covers everything to come. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, it is his children um, who are followed in the royal succession given in, as you've already anticipated, but given in the uh, genealogy that we have in Matthew. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to see that uh, Sheltiel, who is an immediate descendant, uh, of Jeho- him and Jehoi- Kim, uh, um show up, but of course he doesn't rule, does he? But mm-hmm. there's a man, namely Joseph, who's descended from him. Mm-hmm. How's that gonna work? That's the question. Mm-hmm. And they do show up, his children are in this lineage, why?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I think it's very really fascinating to hear of us talkers these if we if most of us read through Jeremiah, we seem like isolated instance and isolated prophecies and we don't really realize the magnitude of what's being said. I mean heck, I hadn't connected Hananiah and August together until I read the book now that is in a viewpoint
1: I had not considered before. Yeah, I think I think it is easy to read on the surface in the sense that we take every story disconnected from every other story but the bible is is really telling a whole story that connects more than just the the, the seemingly disparate stories in jeremiah and it is a little bit jumbled mm-hmm. but actually putting it together with the biggest picture the canonical story and yeah that takes a lot of attending but don't feel bad nick i think it's mm-hmm. going to take us all of eternity yeah. To figure it out just I, I, I think we'll have all of heaven just keep saying oh I see more I see more
0: mm-hmm then when we one aspect of a text I didn't see you talk about though, is that when uh, when the prophecy is given in Jeremiah 22 believers it is, it is it speaks about a signet ring and such but when Zerubbabel returns in the book of Haggai He's referred to as God's signet ring, and I've sometimes considered: could this be a reverser
1: of the prophecy in Jeremiah? Yeah, it really could be, and and I don't want to assert that's not possible. I I I do give a kind of priority to Jeremiah's message: this won't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I do give a kind of priority to what's going on at the birth of Christ. I see that, and and believe that God is basically saying look, I've got this, um, rather than a restoration uh, against the prophecy, which is possible. God often has uh, all of God's uh, uh, curses are going to be reversed, all of them. Um, but I think this was, uh, as you saw in the book, this was at least intended uh, to confuse the enemy. In other words, Satan doesn't have access to everything God knows, or he'd be God. Satan has access to what God's people know. So, for example, First Peter says, even the angels long to look into these things, talking about the prophecies that anticipate the coming of Christ in 1, 8 through 10, I think it is. Mm-hmm. And so Satan, like the angels, is at least that limited. And so he listens to what God's people know. And when God's people are confused... He's necessarily confused. He's got the word, but he doesn't have the spirit to read it by. And so he just has to listen to the debates as we go on trying to make sense out of it. And people, I think, did not know where this Messiah would come from. We get some hint of that from Revelation 12, where Satan is just looking for where is this birth going to come from? I must undo it. But of course, he doesn't. He can't. He doesn't have enough information. So it's possible that part of the reason for this is not just to confuse us but to hide information from the enemy which seems to be an ongoing story. Um, Eve uh, for example after she had her first baby uh, talks about uh, you know this is the this is the seed uh, that was promised in Genesis 3:15 and what do we see next well Satan tries to murder that seed but as an answer um and and he he murders the younger seed and he corrupts the older seed but god actually gives a seed through seth and so satan is just doing his evil best to undermine and whenever the story if you will goes underground uh it makes it more difficult for satan at least whatever other reasons
0: okay since me some people here haven't read the book i'm sure i does say Most of your guys probably haven't yet. Could you expand on this theory you got about the the devil and what happened here?
1: As far as hiding information from the enemy? Yes. Well, if God says to Jeremiah through Jeremiah that the line of David is cut off, it's effectively what Jeremiah twenty-two and thirty-six are saying and yet says within Jeremiah three other times, but I won't abandon David, that's a really confusing information. And if it's true that sure, Shealtio can come back as a governor, but he cannot reign. Um, he cannot be a king like his fathers were, and none of his descendants can be that king, as I would read it, signet ring or not, um, then it makes it very difficult for Satan to know how to oppose this coming king, how to oppose this coming birth of the seed, the seed that threatens to crush his head. And he is active and at work, according to Revelation 12, trying to destroy that king, even at his birth. But by hiding that information, by saying, I have I'm, I'm, seem to have cut down the tree. Interestingly, we have throughout the prophets references to Jesus as the shoot, uh, the, 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 the root as if it had been cut off, a branch growing from that root. Um, this idea of the tree has been chopped down, um, but God is going to do something from that tree which shocks us and Jesus is gonna come from what looked like it was dead and if he's doing that it is at least whatever else it is confusing to the enemy it's certainly confusing to us too or trying to say well then how are you going to do this how will david actually reign mm-hmm. and so my proposal is that 600 years later when the virgin birth comes along um, that what god is doing is saying look he's come through mary now I don't know what Mary's genealogy is and I spend a lot of time talking about the possibilities in the book. Um, At this point, let's just agree that Joseph is clearly said to be descended from David and Solomon and Shealtiel, which makes him related to the royal line. But if I'm right in my reading of Jeremiah, he's not able to rule. But Jesus, who is not his son, can be adopted in and given the right to rule. And so in this way, God uh, sanctifies adoption, something that the Romans gave them. They didn't have Jewish tradition, but he came exactly at the right time. That's stressed throughout scripture. And Satan was trumped because he didn't know enough to prevent it. And it's happening in Galilee, if you will, off camera. Uh, where, you know, it's, it's, it, it, you talked about before, you know, how did he get to Bethlehem? Well, you know, we get that story um, in, in one of the Gospels. But he shows up in Bethlehem, but we know he's a Galilean. Um, he's, being, uh, he's being brought to earth off camera, uh, brought to earth by a woman only and not directly related to the royal line.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess to say, I, I thought it was interesting. Theory. I'm not, you know, totally convinced. But you said, "Hey, that's okay and such." But it is something worth considering. I think. That's I mean, yes, and I think,
1: all I'm proposing. And I, I think,
0: consider. I think some of the early church fathers even said the same thing about the pagan doctrines and such. That this was kind of a diabolical mimicry, as it were, of trying to, to say, "Well, here's what's going to happen."
1: Hmm.
0: So now we, we get to those genealogies and we ask, why are they so different, especially if they're the same person?
1: Yeah, that's right. It is it is confusing. I don't have a definitive answer. The scholars, by and large, <coughs> suggest that both are distinct genealogies of Joseph, perhaps um, uh Coming in and out of that royal line, uh, for example, Luke is not initially coming through the royal line, but through Nathan, probably one of the sons of David. It could could have skipped a couple of geneal- or a couple of, of of generations, but Nathan is not. not I mean, that's a that's a for sure thing. Nathan is not one of the kings. So this is a non-royal line. But by the time we get down to Shealtiel, somebody's married back in, right? And, and it, now it, it has re-entered the, the, the royal line that, at least on my understanding, was cut off by Jehoiakim. So there's distinct uh, rooted uh, identities, and that is prior to David, they are, uh, for all intents and purposes, identical. Post-David... Uh, they're distinct, but they come back around to the royal line. Some have suggested that Mary's uh, genealogy might be given and in, in through uh, the gospel of Luke, because that follows her story, um, whereas Matthew follows the story from Joseph's perspective. And so giving his genealogy, which is the royal one, um, hmm. that might be most scholars uh, read reject that. Um, I find it attractive, uh, but I'm not sure I have enough information to give a definitive uh, view that has any weight. Uh, But I do find that as an attractive possibility, which would allow Paul to say of Jesus, as do others, uh, you know, descended from David. And so if Mary was a non-royal relative, Jesus married into the royal line, um, but rooted back through Abraham, um, that would allow him to be a descendant of David and yet not of the royal line, but coming through Nathan. Is that the case? I don't know. Mm. I do know he's related to David because that's what Paul tells us. And I do know that those two genealogies are there uh, for a purpose. And I suspect it goes beyond what I've discovered yet. Uh,
0: I think if I'm remembering correctly, the early church had about five or six different interpretations of what was going on
1: in these passages. Right, right. People. Uh, people have been trying to understand God's going with that uh, since the beginning I love the fact that the Bible does not make things easy for us, in other words the Bible isn't giving us a story that is just an easy story to hear, it's always challenging us and God doesn't do our work for us Uh, He says, come close Mm -hmm. listen to me, learn from me but He makes us do work
0: I like to mind everyone that you're listening to a Deeper Waters podcast and I'm here with Dr. Richard Schink. This week, and we're talking about his book *The Virgin Birth of Christ*, which I do affirm. But if you're here next week, we're still going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about Mary this time. And I'm going to have Tim Perry here with me. He's written the book *Mary for Evangelicals*. After all, I, sometimes we seem to shy away from Mary when we see what Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox never say. Could that just as much be a mistake? How should evangelicals view Mary? Well, he'll be here. And we're next week. Hopefully, Tim will be on able to talk about. He's, we've tried him on twice. There's been events happening at his church that have kept him coming on, but we're really hopeful this time's going to be different. But for now, let's get back to Doctor Shing talking about his book, The Virgin Birth of Christ, and that uh, you also rely a lot on the work of J. Uh, Gresham Macon, I believe it was, and workers. Mm-hmm. He when, when he started filing some of the opening shots against liberalism, one of the first doctrines he went through apparently is a virgin birth, right? Yeah.
1: Um, again, that that became uh, a dividing point uh, since uh, uh, David Friedrich Strauss wrote The Life of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in a number of ways, uh, Machen was was responding to not only to him in particular, but to those who followed him, um, to those who said, yeah, that, that makes sense. I just like this virgin birth idea. And that was, it was then, not before that the virgin birth became this interesting uh, fault line, because people wanted to be able, by that time, uh, people wanted to be able to have a world that did not need God. And one of the wonderful things about the virgin birth is it is this kind of divider that says, this is my father's world. Um, and God enters into it any way he pleases whenever he wants.
0: Now, one of the things you mentioned in, about Jeconiah and, and such, that's a pretty important thing, is the idea of adoption being so special here. We're going to get back to chapter 5 in your book, some here. But since he brought up adoption, I would like to say... Jews didn't really, I mean, if you look at Old Testament law, I don't think there's really much about adoption, if anything, in there.
1: No, not in the law. There's a few stories. uh, Moses being adopted, of course, by Pharaoh's daughter. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we have the story of Abraham not wanting to be stuck with, if you will, Mm -hmm. uh, the adoption, which would have meant adopting one of his uh, lead servants. Um, He wanted his own son. And other than those, uh, there's stories, there's, there's no laws uh, that come into place. And there wasn't a custom of adoption among the Jews, even apart from that. There wasn't a favorable picture of adoption. It was a, an act of, at best, de- desperation, um, and at worst, uh, a tragedy. Why would that be the case? Well, I don't know why that would be the case, other than just that reality that the other story, if you will, going through the Scripture, is this uh, responsibility, this opportunity that women have to be the bearers of children. And in that, those who are related to Mary um, will come the one who is the seed, you know, with the article. And so to participate in that is the greater thing um, adoption means uh, not participating in that maybe uh, that would seem to be fitting to the story I don't have a clear answer because it's uh, it's only that it isn't there it's only that it's looked at negatively but it is interesting um, it, that it's in the day of Jesus that that changes it, it could also be one of my favorite
0: areas to study is the idea of honor and shame in the biblical culture and it was something considered shameful if a family couldn't have children, especially sons, and adoption could be seen as a thing. Yeah, we've already met, admitted this isn't going to happen to us because that wasn't happening to you. was like, well? God must be opposed to you somehow.
1: Yeah, I think that uh, that has some truth to it. Uh, I think you're you're putting your finger on that, Nick.
0: Mm-hmm. And you did say that there was a system set up, and that was the Roman system, and. It seemed to work pretty well. I mean, even one child who was adopted in the Roman system went on to be emperor.
1: Yeah, the adoption was was a good thing in the context of Rome. Um, And, you know, God raised up Rome, uh, at least as a world system, um, within uh, or less than 100 years of Christ's coming. Uh, Of course, they had a presence before then, but they are... Uh, beginning to dominate the Greek culture in the century leading up to Christ's birth, bringing their customs even into Israel.
0: And, and that can be tied into the whole theme in Galatians that we see at, at the appointed time, such that right. everything was set in place. Uh, you had world with exactly. one language, universal culture pretty much, easy access to traveling around, things of that sort. That the world was essentially life, or Christianity, as it were.
1: And, and even including, this was the day of crucifixion, mm-hmm. and God had already set it up that uh, he who Moses set it up, you know, he who dies on a tree is cursed. Mm-hmm. And so this, this all the pieces are coming together. Every piece that came together was God's puzzle that he laid uh, almost like a mosaic.
0: Mm-hmm. And we we can say it's had its effect too into adoption, cause a lot of Christian couples out there are very really adopting today and see it as a great thing. We got a couple at our church; they've got about eleven kids. I don't think many of them are natural. We just keep adopting more and more new kids and such. And meanwhile, you got the secularists out there who are aborting more and more kids.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I'm part of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, uh, where John Piper was pastor for many years and now mm-hmm. Jason Meyer. And adoption has been a, a significant part of the culture uh, in my church and not disassociated from the rest of the, the uh, evangelical church, but very much highlighted. And as you said, it is. It is not a small matter that this is specifically at the time when the culture is aborting that we have such a high value in adopting. But I think one of the questions is why? You know, Where would this come from? Because we don't see it in the Old Testament. And as you already hinted at, something changed. And although the Bible is not explicit in this, uh, it's my opinion. I'm calling it opinion rather than a, a, a firm but. But it's my it's not my affirmation of belief, but it's my opinion that it was the adoption of Christ by Joseph that resulted in Paul's theology of adoption. And and that was all dependent upon the reality of the virgin birth. Mm-hmm. We uh,
0: tend to develop on the show January to a topic of abortion. And I remember last year we had a guest on who said that really if every church in America... Would adopt one child every season of the year. There would be no need of abortions anymore. We'd we'd be providing for all the children. That's almost always stuck with me.
1: Yeah, what grieves me is uh, several of my friends uh, are present uh, on sidewalks around the abortion clinic that's nearest to our church, and only God can turn somebody's. Hardaway, away, who's set on divorce, the opportunity, for, or on divorce, on abortion, the opportunity for for adopting isn't enough. Um, you know, Satan has deluded us um, into thinking death is good and putting it at the center of our culture. So I agree, wouldn't it be great if every church did that? Hiding a capacity. I think we already have significant capacity for adopting more. Um, God's going to have to change. Hearts and come against the culture of death. And for any
0: interested in this, I do recommend going and listening to some of our January shows on the topic of abortion. We've got many more planned coming up for this next for next month and such. Good. And that, let's also talk about the what you could refer to as the chiastic reverse or that, that could be a new word for some people what exactly is a chiasm
1: <laughs> a chiasm is a term of art it's, it's used by, by biblical theologians and students of the Bible often not all students of the Bible but it refers to a structure that looks like one of the Hebrew letters the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet um, or uh, I'm sorry I misspoke um, uh, uh, the first letter of Christ's name in uh, Greek but the idea is that it builds into the center and works its way back out, and usually at the center of the argument then is the bright spot. So in a lot of times for us, our argument builds A to B to C to D, and the last point is our key point. Um, in, a, in a chiastic structure, the key point is the center, and the points along the way usually parallel each other. So point a is parallel to the last point you make and point b is parallel to the second to last point but c is in the center and that's the bright spot Mm -hmm. and so a chiastic reversal means that when things have worked out very darkly suddenly when you follow them in you come to the bright spot and then they unwind back from that undoing all the all the grief that had happened along the way. And that's what I'm suggesting as a possibility uh, in regard to the virgin birth for the role of Eve being reversed by the role of Mary.
0: Yeah, Let's uh, dig into that some, because when we read our Bibles, Eve seems to get a bum rap sometimes. And this is especially so when we get to First Timothy 2, I believe it is, because you know, it wasn't the man that was deceived. No, no, no. That man, he was innocent. <laughs> that woman. That woman was the problem. And this is why some people think Paul was a sexist. At least one of the reasons. That's because right. he
1: put so much blame on Eve. Yeah, they see him as a misogynist of some kind because that. But they're really misreading it. Um, the, the misreading is this, that what Paul says is it wasn't... Adam who was deceived but Eve and the reason he says that is because when Eve was confronted by God in Genesis chapter 3 her first response is the serpent deceived me and I ate and so what Paul is doing is he's just taking her words putting them at her lips and saying you were deceived the real point there is Adam wasn't deceived Eyes wide open after Eve had eaten of the fruit, whatever kind of fruit it was, she comes to him with this out of it. Questions Why did he eat it? Why would he eat it after he sees that missing bite? And Adam rebelled. That's the implicit statement that Paul's making. But since his issue there is Eve, he's just following her line. But this in no way exonerates Adam. In fact, we're Paul, at that point, to be talking about Adam's sin, which he does in Romans chapter 5. Um, it is on Adam that he hangs the most grievous sin because he acted in knowledge, and he acted with eyes open and rebelled.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the rabbis had some amusing looks. at this. I Just recently, I read uh, Kyle Green, Greenwood's probably edited, Since the Beginning, looks in the history of uh, Genesis 1 and 2, and we are working on booking him. He was supposed to come on, but we had a family crisis happen here, and we're working on getting him back on. But one of the most amusing ones I read as an interpretation of the account is some rabbis said, well, what had happened, or at least one of them it what happened was that Adam and Eve had just got done having sex, and Adam fell asleep as a result, and then by that time Eve was deceived and she woke him up, and in his and he was so tired and groggy, he didn't realize what he was doing until he took a bite from him,
1: Oh, my gosh, what did I just eat? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a bit amusing to hear these kinds of things. Milton had another take and uh, in Paradise Lost, and I'm, I'm inclined to think it's 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 a possible, you know, the, the Bible isn't clear. But Milton's take was that having seen that fruit with the bite out of it, seeing Eve holding that, and he realizes in that moment, he has to choose between this woman that God gave to him to solve the the very problem that God pointed out in Adam's soul. He doesn't have a helper fit for him. Once he got that helper, he was not about to choose her over God, or say it the other way, he didn't value God highly enough to choose mm-hmm. God over her, and so mm-hmm. on Milton. His choice was to rebel and say, I'm taking the gift, I'm taking this woman you created for me, and I'm rejecting you, God, which makes his sin all the worse.
0: Yeah. Interesting when you look at the same way you were interpreting passage, Paul isn't being soft on Adam. If anything he could be being harder on Adam, because he said, You know, Eve Eve made a mistake, she was deceived, she we could say she didn't know better, but
1: Adam, boy,
0: you had no excuse whatsoever for doing that. That's exactly right.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Exactly right. Now, the Uri Church, that, this isn't entirely new, because the Eury Church did have looks at a, at a Mary and Eve, and they did, they did regularly compare the two of them together. I'm not sure all the comparisons were entirely valid. For instance, they refer to Mary and Eve as both virgins. I'm not sure the text gives us any indication that Eve was a virgin at that point. But the comparisons were going on.
1: It does give us a, a, an indication though that she was because God tells them twice, go have kids. And hmm. it's only in chapter 4.1 it says Adam knew his wife Eve. It sounds like it's new news. Uh, it may hmm. not be. Um, but but because 4-1 opens with Adam to his, his wife, there's some indication that, that the fall happened so quickly they hadn't gotten around to trying to make kids together. Hmm. I, I just find that a bit surprising, but it could be I'm um,
0: looking at it from a much more foreign perspective and such, which would think a couple doesn't really probably need much encouragement and such, but who knows?
1: That's why I think it didn't take long for the fall. It's just that argument. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Now, the passage does say some other things that really we can have a hard time understanding, such as, saved by childbirth. What, are we saying that a woman has to be married and have kids in order to be saved?
1: <laughs> well, that was uh, one of the throwaway uh, interpretations, isn't it? Um, mm-hmm. the, the argument here is, is in some ways very simple. I, I spend a lot of time in the book trying to be very careful because I, I, the argument I'm going to make isn't at the center of the discussion about egalitarian versus complementarity. And I don't want to pretend that, that what I'm saying really enters into that discussion. But I, mm-hmm. I do think it's important and, and worth seeing uh, some of the, the key things about this which may talk to exactly the issue of the virgin birth. And so in verse 13... It says Adam is formed first, then Eve. So whatever else Paul is going to say about egalitarianism or complementarity, um, he is making an historical argument, a theological argument that's grounded in Adam and Eve. And so we could say chapter 2 of 1 Timothy verse 13 is about creation and creation specifically of Adam and Eve. Verse 14, it continues with that historical argument. Adam was not deceived. You've already uh, alluded to that. But the woman was deceived on her own words in Genesis 3 and became a transgressor. So 13 talks about creation. 14 talks about the fall. Now, if we continue in that line, if Paul is going to continue that line, we have every right to expect the next phrase and since we have verses, the next verse, to follow that up. So we've got creation, we've got the fall. We would expect the next to be about redemption, and we're not surprised. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, with self-control. Um, this is talking about redemption. There's the word sosa, which in Greek is Paul's very technical word. In fact, as I, on my reading and the reading of most scholars, he never uses that word apart from um, redemption. That is not just the kind of saving like you save green green steps or you save the whales. Uh, Paul is using this in a very technical, redemptive sense and of course that follows. 13 creation, 14 fall, 15 about redemption. So what's he saying then about it? Um, There's a a pronoun here, she, and some scholars, and I would agree with them, um, trace this back through 13 and 14 to be talking about Eve. Eve will be redeemed, saved, Sosa, through and my Bible and maybe yours has childbearing um, but interestingly this has an article The Childbearing. Now having an article doesn't necessarily make it specific. Doesn't necessarily make us jump to capital C. Um, uh, When I was in the UK they talk about going to hospital without an article. We talk about going to the hospital. Neither of those are more specific than the other. We could have a specific hospital in mind with or without the article, a, uh, a general hospital in mind with or without it. So the article doesn't necessarily force us to that conclusion. But Paul does tend to use the article. In fact, some would say exclusively when he uses the article in this context. in this letter, he is being specific. And given that the antecedent is Eve, it would seem that he probably is talking about the seed. In fact, the whole story of the Bible is about the seed. So instead of childbearing generally, it seems he's talking about the child who's going to come, who by the time Paul wrote this did. And then the next phrase, if they, so who's they? Well, it's Adam and Eve, but very likely, Adam and Eve and all of their descendants, you and I, continue in faith, love, and holiness. And that last phrase, with self-control. Uh, what he's really saying there is without, uh, without losing your head, what he's saying is he's referring to Eve's failure. Eve lost her head there in the garden. And he's saying that what Mary did, I think, What Mary did in the childbirth is the redemptive act that both salvifically offers salvation to women, but to men too, if us, if we continue without losing our head in the face of Satan. Now, this isn't isn't, this isn't uh, salvation by works because he's talking about the childbearing. It's Jesus who does it, but he calls us to keep our head. And if you will, delight in this work that God has done. And so that now in this context, Mary's obedience, which didn't cause salvation but brought about salvation through Christ, um, overturns Eve's failure.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to remind everyone at this point before we go on, that you're listening to the Deeper Broadworth podcast. Everything we do here is listen or supported by people like you and Friends, it's kind of point of end-of-a-year giving. Last chance to make donations for your for tax credits and things like that and such. Consider us, please. Go to deeperwatersapologics.com. Here's a link on the side. Help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. Okay, you click on that link. All of a sudden you're taking the Ministry of Risen Jesus. Have you gone to the right place? Yes, you still have. That's their donation page, but Mike and Debbie Lacona are my in-laws. You make your donation, and then you get in touch with Mike, or Debbie, or me, or Allie, and say, hey, I made my donation. I want to go to Nick Peters, I want to go to Deeper Waters. That way we get the donation, and it is tax-deductible. You can also buy some ebooks, ones that I've written, or that would be one I've written. Um, A Creed for the Ages, the Apostles' Creed, and today's Christian. Or ones out, Cohen, just recently came out, Contextualizing Inerrancy, The Sequel to Defining Inerrancy, Groundless, God and Natural Disasters, Christian Answers to This Generation's Questions, and also there's the Mention of Ours project that I worked with, that seems to be one of our biggest sellers here, and one other thing you can do to help us out, jewelry. We actually have a jewelry store. You have a lady who sells jewelry for us, and guys, Christmas is coming up, and you know, Christmas can be a very romantic time. I speak from experience. I popped the question to Allie on Christmas Eve, for instance. Maybe you want to do the same thing. Well, you're gonna need a ring to do that. So why not go and get a ring for us, and whatever you purchase, 25% of it goes to Deeper Waters. And guys, you know my rule, I've always told you about jewelry. If your wife loves it, you can get something special for that lady in your life to make up that recent screw-up that you did with her. Or, you can get something special for that lady in your life to make up that screw-up that I know you're going to make with her. Now, if you can't do any of these, guys, please go on iTunes and leave a positive review for Deeper Waters Podcast. I have no idea how much it means to me to see those. Now, Doctor Shink, do you have an organization or charity you'd like to see people donate to?
1: I'm part of Bethlehem Baptist Church, and we have the Bethlehem College and Seminary, which has been operating for 10 years. And that uh, we have we have all of our programs are kept intentionally uh, very low. Uh, For example, our whole MDiv uh, is offered this year and has been for twenty-four thousand dollars for the whole four years. Uh, hmm. It's an accredited school. We're there for God's glory and we are there to represent and train men who are sco- students of God's word. And I'm glad to be a part of that, but it only works uh, because of donations. We keep the cost very low, both for grad school and our undergrad students. Mm-hmm. And while I was listening to the show, you can be sure it's a school—a
0: good Orthodox school because obviously, since Dr. Shink's on here, we know that they affirm the virgin
1: birth, which I do affirm. So,
0: where do they go if they want to make those donations, what's the site
1: again? Um, they can just uh, look up Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis uh, uh, on Google and they'll come right to our site. Mm-hmm.
0: So, uh, when we return to the 1st Timothy, one of the questions we can also ask is, why did Paul write this anyway? He was just saying, "Hey, Timmy, I've got a, a cool new theory. Check this out. See what you think." I mean, what, what was going on that led him to write this?
1: <laughs> well, that's a, a significant question, probably beyond the scope of my book. But uh, one of the questions obviously it has to do with: you know, is he writing this to particular women or particular men who are causing some difficulties within the church? as far as the specific role that women have. Um, There's some real good materials on that. I'm not prepared to go into that today, though I I believe that Mm -hmm. that Paul was arguing for a complementarian role, that uh, God has given us roles within marriage and within the church, and those roles are uh, dim reflections of the kind of uh, relations that exist within the Trinity. And... and, um, a lot of times because we're fallen uh, on both sides, we get those messed up. I do think it goes back to the fall when Paul said uh, to, or Paul, when God said to Adam and Eve, um, e- to Eve, your desire will be to manipulate your husband and to the husband, you will become a tyrant. Um, that's my paraphrase, but based on the use of chapter four, verse seven of Genesis, when God says to Cain, sin desires to have you, to, not to to love you or to enjoy you, but to control you. But you must overthrow it. You must master it. And same words are used there, which were used against, uh, against Adam and Eve. So I think what God is saying is we're really messed up. Uh, we don't enjoy the God-given roles. We're always trying to overthrow each other. And I think the context here uh, in in First Timothy is helping us to get that right. like
0: mm-hmm. to before we get into Mary, I would like to know that everyone knows that if you're interested in this kind of question about misogynist passages in the New Testament, and such we did have Lynn Coeck on our show one time talking about the, the Bible and women. So if back on a topic interests you go back to that show and listen to that. Yeah, so Mary comes along what does mary do that's so special man exactly because we read the text and if we're not informed it looks kind of simple. she just says the angel shows up says here's what we want to do and mary's going like, like, so, ah, sounds good to me go ahead
1: <laughs> yeah it's interesting to see the difference between mary and eve the roman catholic church has made a lot of this and i'm I'm interested in your discussion next week, Nick. Uh, I think one of the mm-hmm. things that's happened is we've been afraid to delight in Mary. Of course, Mary herself said that we will, uh, in her Magnificat, uh, that we'll always be, we should always be speaking well mm-hmm. of the servant of God as we do for Moses and uh, mm-hmm. the prophets. Um, but we're a little bit afraid to, as protesters, as Protestants, maybe to put it, distance between us and what worries us is looking like a a worship of a person, and we certainly shouldn't do that. But there are real important similarities in these stories, which are intentional on God's part. That is not how the stories are written, but how the stories were choreographed, if you will, by God and, and through his spirit. So that what we see in Eve in the garden is Eve is in a perfect situation. And in that perfect situation, she acts foolishly and gullibly and ultimately against God. And yet, in contrast, we have Mary in a difficult situation, living in Nazareth in a day of Roman domination and relative poverty. And in that context, she meets with an angelic being and She's not gullible at all. She's skeptical. How can this be, she says. You know, Eve didn't say that. Eve's first words are half agreeing and half disagreeing with Satan, which is exactly where he wanted her to be. And then she looked at the opportunity and she chose that over God. It started to look really good to disobey God. Eve, after she asked that tough question, how many people would ask that of an angel? How can this be? It sounds almost demanding, almost impertinent. You mean Mary. Did I switch it? Yes, thank you. Um, That impertinence was actually a good thing. And when she heard the angel's answer, Mary said, let it be to me as you have said. And that that let it be to me exactly the opposite of Eve, who said, I'm getting what I want. Mary was giving up, as she thought, everything she wanted. Uh, She was imagining giving up her husband. She was imagining Being um, grieving her parents. She was imagining the names that people would call her. And so even though um, she delights, her response is delighting God, that says who she was compared to Eve, and really compared to most of us who are afraid to give up anything at God's command. But the distinction Mm -hmm. between these two is another indication of how Mary redeems Eve, redeems women's... um, uh, uh, reputation, if you will, because seen through through Eve, the reputation of women was with her uh, gullible, naive and deceived. But the reputation through Mary, the one who brought about the childbirth by God's mercy and grace, um, is one who's obedient and delighting in God, and both of them conceiving by ear, one conceived by ear, sin. And the other conceived by ear and said, let it be to me as you say, and brought forth the childbirth.
0: Mm-hmm. So what does that mean then for women today and our view of
1: women, how we should treat them in the church? Well, it certainly means that we should treat them in light of a, all of us in redemption are to be seeing ourselves uh, as God does ones who are now adopted and who have are delighting in the right things and in the right way and that's partly what it means to become a christian we become a christian only by the blood of christ and by faith but having become a christian we've now adopted right loves and a right love is to love the things god loves first of which which is delighting in him and obedience to him and so women can be seen in light of mary and Mary becomes a kind of role model. Um, we need role models. And although Mary's, Mary doesn't join the Trinity, she's not a savior, we don't worship her, uh, she certainly she certainly is one that uh, men and women can look to and say, wow, that's the kind of person I want to be mm. in Christ.
0: And my, my Sam guy, whenever he does my show, he tells me he always... Loves it when I start talking about my wife on the air. Yeah, he he loves it and he hates it because he says it's so great how much you're devoted, but it always makes the rest of us look really bad. <laughs> my, my thing is, I uh, I go on Facebook six days a week. I don't post on Sundays, and every day I post a marriage meme and a love message to my wife every single day. And one of the things I've said before, because I'm very much a complementarian in my approach, but I've also said, look, I hold a complementarianism, but if a man is the king of his castle, his wife gets treated like a queen.
1: Well, that's a that's a good way to approach it, Nick. Mm-hmm.
0: So, now, one of the other things you also say about the significance of a doctrine is you talk about our own virgin birth. And I, I'm sure people me. might be saying, um, I'm sorry, but I think I know how my parents brought me into this world. And it wasn't through a virgin birth. <laughs>
1: well, you know, as I mentioned before, in, in John 1, uh, writing a, a good prologue, like any good uh, uh, author of music, he puts all the themes in his prologue, and he does that in John one, twelve and 13, when speaking both of Christ's uh, birth, as well as our own, says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, not of the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And now this idea comes into dialogue when Jesus is meeting with the Kadimus. And in meeting with Nicodemus, uh, he holds Nicodemus accountable for not understanding this. And this is driving Nicodemus crazy. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? And Jesus keeps back at him unless one is born. Water and spirit. He can't enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus' response again is, how can these things be? But Jesus says, you're Israel's teacher? And you don't get this. You should understand. He says, don't marvel at this, that you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wills. You hear its sound. You do not w- know where it comes from or where it is going. But so it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. So Jesus is saying to Nicodemus that we, too, are those who are virgin born. That is, spirit through no desire of our own, and impossible on human terms. Mm-hmm. Okay, was, was that it, or <laughs> that it? It like you were going for a little bit more. No, I could, I could. Um, you know, he, Jesus is probably referencing Ezekiel uh, thirty-six. Mm-hmm. And, and here where God is saying that the the spirit is the one who animates and gives real life to his people. Um, he could be also talking about the new covenant in Jeremiah. Um, he could be talking about, and, and in fact is, the, the circumcision that God does of our heart that Moses talks about in, in Deuteronomy. So all of these things are... The ground is laid in the Old Testament, and we already know that the Spirit is the one who gives life. We saw that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, when the Spirit was hovering over the waters. And then similarly, we saw that the Spirit is the one who's hovering over Mary in Luke one thirty-five, And now we see in John that the Spirit is the one who hovers over us and gives us life. We don't do it. This is, this is God alone who comes and gives us life. Our response is to, like Mary, respond in joy and delight and say God is the one who does this. But this is, in that sense, a a virgin birth. This is God doing it on his own, not through any means we could understand, manipulate, or cause of ourselves. Mm -hmm.
0: Now, when we are talking about The idea of the new birth coming through something outside ourselves and such you referenced John 3 so I take it you probably don't think that Jesus is talking about baptism in that passage like many people in church history have thought.
1: Yeah I've seen that discussion I just don't think that that fits into what Jesus is saying here it certainly doesn't fit into the response of Nicodemus so water and the spirit which he says in verse 5 Seems to me, uh, and and fits with uh, the Old Testament story, uh, not of baptism, but if you're born of water, but you must be born of the Spirit, um, fitting again to what he says, you know, back in in verse three, and then he goes on to say, let me explain what the birth of the Spirit is. It's it's done by the Holy Spirit. Um, yes, it could be, uh, and there's some there's some good scholars who think that this is talking about baptism. But that doesn't seem to be fundamentally fitting. But even if it is, is um, God's saying, I do the real deal. You know, it is the Spirit who gives life. Um, mm-hmm. There has to be this unilateral work of God by the Spirit that allows us to say, Jesus is Lord. Uh, but without the Spirit, we're not going to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. And in case you're curious about for your own information, I, I don't think it refers to baptism either, but it it would seem fitting with what you're saying because when we read about the coming of Christ into the world and things of that sort, it's almost like it's what I refer to as the grand reverser, mm-hmm. as it were, that death had reigned, as Paul says, and then life starts to reign all the way up to the resurrection, which we could kind con- of consider the a crescendo, yeah, a well, climax of history, where things all of a sudden start turning around.
1: Yes, I agree.
0: And what would uh, what would you say? Then, does this have any impact on, say, our interpretation of the last two chapters of the Book of Revelation?
1: Well, I would say it the other way. The last two chapters of the Book of Revelation governed any um, any. Exegesis it governs our hermeneutics uh, because that is the the telos and everything that we're learning, understanding, doing is governed by by the final act of God within time, or if you will, the first act of God outside of time, the new creation. So, so specifically, what you mean, I'm not quite sure, uh, but I could certainly sign on to it. But you probably have something more specific in mind, Nick.
0: I kind of have the idea that Revelation 21-22 is um, the ultimate end of the whole new life thing, that this is resurrection of not just us eventually, but what I call resurrection cosmos. Sure. As it were, new heavens and new earth That's right. It's my stipulation. It's not that God just said, oh, dang it. the heavens, the earth was ruined, we're going to have to start all over again, but he doesn't do away with heaven and earth. He gives them a new birth, much like he gives to us, that everything gets reversed, in a sense, that that I mean, aside from, I'm not endorsing anything like universalism of sorts, but I just mean that creation is restored to what God originally
1: meant it to be, but it starts with us. Well, I would say almost. Um, in other words, we talked about uh, chiasms. Um, mm-hmm. And the idea here is that there was an original creation and mm-hmm. a crisis. So chapter one and two, creation culminating in a marriage, interestingly. Mm-hmm. And then the fall. And then the rest of the old covenant is about the effects of that fall and the promise of a solution um, mm-hmm. coming out of Genesis 3.15. And then the incarnation, which we've been talking about today, is the second creation. The death of Christ is the second crisis. Interestingly, there's also in that two grouping, there's also a second second creation, which is parallel to Christ's birth. We get out of the resurrection and the cross, we get the birth of a new people, the church, which you were referring mm-hmm. to a moment ago. And then the third creation, uh, which you rightly said is is a kind of recreation. It's not de novo like the first. Um, begins with a crisis, the judgment, which is parallel to the fall of Adam and Eve, and then the final recreation in Genesis one and two. Or I'm sorry, in Revelation twenty one and twenty two, is parallel to the first creation. But this third creation. is isn't just restoring, and like you said, it's certainly not uh, another try, it is actually reflected through this amazing work of God on the cross, which instead of bringing of power, um, he brought the stunning power of suffering evil Mm -hmm. and trusting God. You know, he, he did something that nobody could have anticipated, in fact, so unanticipatable was that the apostles, no matter how often they were told what was going to happen, said, no, 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 that's not going to happen, until afterwards, finally, they mm-hmm. begin to get it. And so what God is doing is this three-stage creation to bring us from where Adam could never be mm-hmm. to our eternal Romans 8 destiny of being freely conforming. You know, That's the argument of Romans 8, is we're not only free, but we're conforming. Free twenty and twenty one, conforming in twenty eight and twenty nine of Romans eight. And the freely conforming is just that stunning final move of God in which, like the first marriage, there's a last marriage. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, the the Bible is really the story of a marriage taking place in a garden both times. And the garden theme is so essential something else that I think about, this since you referenced Romans 8, which is one of the most wonderful chapters, I think, in Scripture, mm-hmm. that um, I, I've i been involved in some of the debate about who's Paul talking about before in Romans 7. Is he talking about himself or someone else? I tend to go with Ben Webbington's position, but he's talking about Adam. And something else says, you know, if we identify way too much with Romans 7, we were myth of good news that our true identity as Christians is found in Romans 8.
1: Yeah, with, with modification, I think that's right. If, if he's talking about Adam, I think Paul's also talking about his own experience in the sense that uh, Romans 7 can't be speaking about non-Christians, uh, because Paul says he delights in the law. It can't be talking about Christians. says he's still a slave to sin. I think he's talking about that middle category, which is not yet Christians. Those who are elect uh, eternally, but temporally just waking up to it, and yet haven't in time crossed the line. And this is Paul, if you will, on his Damascus road, fighting with himself and fighting with God until he gets knocked off of his transportation onto the ground. And this his confrontation with Jesus, which is Wonderfully short because Paul's already been prepared. He, he loves the law. He wants to obey and he can't. And then Jesus says, Stop working against me. You're going to work with me. You're going to be with me on the front lines. And so I think talking about his own experience, he will save me from this body of death. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So, Romans 7 is a not yet Christian experience. So maybe Adam, sure. I think more specifically Paul. And, and Romans 8 is our chapter. If we want to know the tension of not always being who we want to be, we go to Galatians 5, where it says the Spirit contends with our still, our bias to work against it. Um, that's there in Romans 5, and yeah, we've all experienced that, but it's not there in Romans 7. Mm-hmm.
0: So I think then what we need to realize about the virgin birth, argument is the virgin birth of Christ is an event that happened, In the past, it's not going to happen like that ever again. Christ is never going to be born again, as it were. But that it happened to Christ means that God's capable of bringing new spiritual
1: life to all of us as well. And and interestingly, you started this uh, interview with asking about Paul and if there's any hints in Paul. We talked about Galatians. But also Galatians 4.19, you know, I, I labor always until Christ is born in you. It sounds very much uh, like a comparison between Christ's virgin birth and, and our virgin birth. Um, that is, you know, Christ born in you as if we're married um, and, and as if God is doing this uh, by himself, uh, male and female alike. Um, so you know, I like that verse too. Is it's a great metaphor that Paul ties into, which I think is again his ascent uh, to the virgin birth and giving it a fuller meaning in us. Mm-hmm. But never again. That's right. Never again, unless you see it in us. In a, in a, in God doing this. Uh, uh, we are the metaphor for the real thing, but the real thing only happened once. But it's mm-hmm. real in us. It's just not. It, it, is, it is God showing, again, his power to create uh, on his own authority, not in ours. Mm-hmm. So now
0: we've got a Christmas time here with just around the corner. There's going to be so many pageants and such going on about Christianity. We're going to have several ch- school ch- children and churches putting on these plays and such. What do you think, what do you want people to be thinking about the story of a virgin birth when they see it announced in these in these shows?
1: Sure. I, I'd be pleased if uh, they, they ask God, God what's the drama that they're supposed to enact once they believe the virgin birth. It's pretty. It's cute. We love to see our kids. Um, we like to hear the story. It's comforting but that is not the reason he gave it. Um, those may be entailments that we like in our, and thank God for, but really he is calling for us to figure out the drama we're to put on. Rome, uh, Galatians 4.19 is an example of a drama. Doing the work of discipleship, that Christ may be born in others. Um, it might go with, are we willing to be a fool? First Corinthians uh, chapter 15, Are we willing to be a fool for God, trusting that God is doing this impossible thing of calling people to himself who don't want him? Um, And are we on the front lines with Jesus? He doesn't need us, but we get this privilege of being on the front lines that Christ would be born in others. So, yeah, I think I want people to be asking, what is the drama that we as a church are supposed to put on when we get the birth? not just enjoy the pretty lights and the scenes and the story as if it was only a 2,000-year-old story. It certainly is a truth from 2,000 years ago that our whole life depends on, but we're supposed to enact it today.
0: You know, when you were talking about being seen as fools and such, I I just suddenly remember that years ago, uh, David Letterman was interviewing Larry King, and he asked him, If there was anyone you could interview, past, present, such, who would it be? And Larry King immediately said, Jesus Christ. He says, really? <laughs> so what would you ask him? He said, It's one question. I would ask him if he was born of a virgin. That question to me, that answer would explain all
1: of history at that point. Uh, uh, I'm not surprised. I hadn't heard that story before, but I'm not surprised. That's uh, the, We know that history turns in this. We changed our whole calendar because of it. Um, mm-hmm. This is the turning point of history. Mm-hmm. It is when God says, I'm keeping my word. I really did not just create and let it fall apart. I created and I redeem."
0: Mm-hmm. And I think there has also been said before, when it comes to Jesus, we can look at him as evil one of two ways. He is either the son of God or he is the son of Joseph.
1: Yeah, that's right. And and if he's the son of Joseph, he is not a redeemer.
0: Mm-hmm. So really it really just does come down all to this question. And it's not just God showing off. It's it's everything. It's if Jesus is born of a virgin and you know sometimes people ask me, well, why do you believe that like where, you know, once you believe the resurrection of Christ believing of a virgin birth just seems to come along quite naturally with that and I think even someone like William Lane Craig said at one point one of the drives of his skepticism was a virgin birth when he was a teenager but then when he then at one point he thought, thought well, you know if I came to conclude that God could create an entire universe a virgin birth isn't that big of a big deal for him
1: <laughs> that's right
0: now, if people get the book here, what do you really
1: want them to take away from the book? Uh, again, I, I think my answer would be the same to the last question. I, I want to motivate them to figure out the drama that they are to put on as part of the church. What's mm-hmm. their response? We, no, don't just believe it. Mm-hmm. Like, don't just say it's true. Live it out. And what's that look like? I suggested six ways. Um, but I think there's there's six times 60 ways, and God will continue as Spirit to show us how we're to live that drama. Mm-hmm. And i like let people know that
0: when you're on my page, you'll see a lot of jokes and humor and such. And the story behind the virgin birth joke thing that we've got going is rather amusing. It's got a good point to it, but it in no way means the virgin birth is a joke. It is a serious doctrine, and I'm quite thankful that I've got... Dr. Sienk's book here, and went through it, it really is very eye-opening to many things we normally wouldn't think about. And there is one, I'm sure I could say, but we have come up to the time where we have to be cutting things off here. Now, if you do want to buy the book, it's The Virgin Birth of Christ by Richard Sienk. I'm sure he wouldn't object to you buying the one by, by Gresham Macon that's where, well, but it is, is The Virgin Birth of Christ with his name on it. So, the paperback version, as of the time of recording, paperback on Amazon, Fourteen ninety nine Kindle version nine ninety nine. Now, Doctor Sink do you have a, a blog, a website, an email where people can get in touch with you? If want to find out more.
1: I uh, you know I do not, but um, I try. I have a I have a, a mild aversion to social media, um, but I uh, can be reached uh, at either of two websites. I'll give you my personal one because it's easier than Bethlehem one. The personal one is just Rick shank no punctuation r-i-c-k-s-h-e-n-k at gmail Mm -hmm. but if they go to the bethlehem college and seminary website they can find me under faculty and just click through and not even need to remember that
0: Mm -hmm. and do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave for the deeper Waters
1: audience today i'm just grateful to you for giving me the time to talk about something that's far more important to god than you and i have yet realized I'm very grateful
0: to have you on here, and of course, we still have to know, do you still affirm for virgin birth, which I do affirm?
1: You and I do together, and mm-hmm. God before us.
0: Mm-hmm. But i ought like to mind everyone better. Next week on the show, we are going to have Tim Perry on, talking about his book, Mary or Evangelical? How should evangelical Christians look at Mary it's being we, read- We might think the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church go too far, but are we making the opposite mistake of going too short? Uh, That's going to be next week. For now, I am Nick Peters, and I am signing off, and I affirm the Virgin perfect.